Hello, microbe friends. I'm Dr. Justine Dees, and welcome to the Joyful Microbe Podcast. It's the show all about the microbes we encounter in our daily lives. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't wait to share this show with you. So how would you explain microbiology to a child? It's an abstract topic since you can't readily see microbes due to their size. So to help your kids visualize microbes, you can read them a children's book specifically about microbiology. Yeah, it's cool. There are some books out there like these. I've featured a few excellent ones before on Joyful Microbe. But after I found out about today's guest, Dr. Mike Mainfield, a microbiologist who writes children's microbiology books, I knew I needed to chat with him. He's a full-time professor at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, and writes these incredible books as a hobby. His publishing company is called Micronovo. So today we'll chat about some of the microbial stars of the books. And we talk about three of the Micronovo books, but there are several others. And then we wrap it up with an at-home microbiology activity that Mike shared with us about biodegradation. All right, let's get on to the interview. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the Joyful Micro Podcast. Hi, Justine. How are you? Good. I am so excited to have you on here. Um, so you are a professor at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, and you do environmental microbiology research and on a topic called bioremediation, which is using microbes to clean up pollution. And you're an author of several children's books about the microbial world, which is really what I brought you on here to talk about. But before we dive into the books, let's talk about your research a little bit. So can you start out by telling us a little bit about bioremediation for folks who've never heard about that concept before? Yeah, sure. So bioremediation is uh, the use of living things, mostly bacteria, to remove pollutants from the environment. So microorganisms are used to biologically degrade contaminants in the environment to clean up contaminated sites. Well, I think that's really interesting to think about using microbes to clean up contaminated sites. It's actually one of the first things that got me interested in microbiology was when one of my my microbiology professor in college mentioned that they would clean up spills with microorganisms like oil spills and gasoline spills. And it just kind of blew my mind that you could actually take an organism and put it in the ground and then it would clean it up. Yeah, it's like bacteria are like the liver of the planet or the planet has yeah. a liver and the liver is made up of bacteria. Yeah, that's kind of crazy to think about them as like filtering through things. Are they, so are they eating the compounds? Yeah, they can do that. So they can use uh, pollutants as a carbon and an energy source um, in the same way that we use 
toast as a carbon and energy source, but they can also degrade pollutants through respiration. So if you think about how we degrade oxygen through respiration, there are microorganisms that can use pollutants for, for respiration in the place of oxygen, and that breaks them down as well. Wow, that is amazing. So what are a few examples of bioremediation that goes on that we may not even realize it's happening all the time? When is this being used and then taking place in, in nature as well? Yeah, so I guess it's important to realize that uh, it, it does take place in nature. I mean, things like coal and oil are natural products and they seep out of uh uh, you know, they crop or outcrop or seep out of the ground and microorganisms degrade uh, those things. Um, but when we have a spill like uh, the Deep Horizon oil spill, for example, or, um, you know, a, a, an oil tanker runs aground and oil spills into the ocean, then microorganisms break that oil down over time. Um, one of the really common examples, though, that people might be able to relate to is often you'll see what we call a petrol station, but uh, you guys call a, a gas station, um, you'll see them fenced up from time to time. And that's because the uh, tanks underground have been leaking and often bioremediation is used to clean those up and then uh, they can install new tanks and start over again. Another that's really, the, yeah, go on. That, that's the exact example that my professor used was he, he said that that exact thing was, like if you see, if you drive past a gas station and the dirt's all dug up and it's not being used, then they're using, probably using bioremediation to clean up the, the leaks. And so <laughs> that just amazed me. And he said that it was pseudomonas that they would use from time to time. Is that right? Yeah, if definitely. I remember correctly. The pseudomonads definitely have uh, a whole uh, bank of genes uh, for hydrocarbon degradation, but there's a lot of other organisms. Ultimately, these things work better when it's, you know, there's not one super bug, but the, the, they work together uh, to clean up contaminated sites. Dry so cleaning, do they usually? I was just going to say dry cleaning facilities are another really common one uh, where oh. the dry cleaning solvents uh, can get into the ground and uh, bioremediation is a classic for cleaning up those sites. Another, the, the bigger ones that you don't normally see day to day are sort of major industrial sites. I think they're called brownfield sites in the US. And bioremediation is used a lot in those sites. But there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these sites around the world. Wow. So dry cleaning. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that one before. That's yeah, pretty interesting. A, a, a solvent called perchloroethene. Uh, which is used in dry cleaning. Um, and that's an example of one that where bacteria are actually respiring that pollutant to break it mm. down. So when they do bioremediation, you said it's usually several different microbes. So do they do that with bacteria mostly, or is it a community of bacteria and yeast, or are there other microbes involved? Uh, it's typically the bacteria doing most of the heavy lifting, same as in a wastewater treatment plant. There, you know, there are fungi there and there are archaea there, but in, um, you know, it's mostly the bacteria that are doing this work. But they often work together um, in symbiosis or, or syntrophy. Mm. Uh, so, for example, you know, to stimulate microorganisms to break down dry cleaning solvents, you would add uh, something like sugar. And that sugar needs to be fermented to produce hydrogen. 
and acetate, which feeds the bacteria that actually do the, the biodegradation of the contaminant. Do they put that into the ground wherever the, if it's like the gas station, do they put that in the ground or do they put it with the microbes and then into the ground? Uh, so with a gas station contaminated site, that's hydrocarbons acting as a food source. So what you really need to make sure is that they have enough nitrogen and phosphorus. Basically, you just need to fertilize that. Um, mm -hmm. But with a dry cleaning solvent, what you need to do is uh, provide carbon and energy. So you would add something like sodium lactate to the ground or emulsified vegetable oil. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, so that stimulates the, the buildup of uh, biomass. So you get increased numbers of cells, and so the whole thing goes faster and faster as the pollutant is degraded. And are then are they using microbes that are already present and just stimulating them, or are they adding microbes to that soil? So you can do both. Um, so the addition of chemicals to stimulate the microbial community is called biostimulation. And you can also bio-augment, which is the addition of microorganisms that uh, you need at the site to break down the pollutants. That can speed things up. It's more common just biostimulation because the microbes are almost everywhere. But sometimes at a particular <laughs> site, they might be missing a gene or two to complete the degradation. So it's worthwhile mm -hmm. adding an organism there. Well, that's really, that's really cool. I love that. The microbes are usually already there. That's really, really amazing. Well, so that is your day job. And as a full-time professor, you work on this topic and um, in academia. But let's talk about the books that you have written. You've written seven children's books about the microbial world. So can you tell us a bit about the books and what age group they're for? Yeah, it's been a nice hobby for quite some time now. Um, so I think the best way to describe them um, for people who know the Mr. Men books or the Little Miss books, um, they're, they're a little bit like Mr. Men books, but the characters are bacteria rather than random mm -hmm. shapes. <laughs> um, so people have been using them um, to read to kids, sort of under reading age, sort of b before they're four years old, um, you know, a bedtime story, uh, great illustrations, so that works really well. Um, but I really wrote them for children who are in the first few years of their reading life, um, so sort of age four to eight, I guess. Um, but I also read them to my university students in lectures just to get their mind mm -hmm. at working at that scale. Uh, imagining what the world is like at a microscopic scale. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a great idea. And just using a story to to get people kind of latched on to whatever concept you're talking about. Um, and what I love about the books is that in each one you highlight a different microbe that plays a key role in our lives. And at the very end, you actually give like the real life scientific information about the microbe with a little bit more detail. And I think that's really great because it provides some helpful context to the story. So what gave you the idea to structure them that way? Um, yeah, so the... Intent with the books was actually to communicate something real about the, the about microbiology. So, 
you know, that's why I have on the front of them based on a true story. So I want, want mm-hmm. people to know that this is real and that's what makes it so far out, right? It's such a great subject matter to be writing about because you don't really have to use your imagination to make it really wild uh, because the microbial world is just that wild. Um, it is very sci-fi. And so I wanted to create accessible content, you know, um, with the toughest of audiences, really children, um, to make it accessible to them. Um, but then also reinforce at the end for teachers or for parents that, you know, this is real. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is what it's really based on. And the organism has a scientific name. And these are the phenomena mm-hmm. that are being described in the book. Um, so you can kind of, uh, you get a little lesson out of every book. It's not just a, a fun little story with great pictures. It's, um, it's you learn something about the world that you're living in. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that a lot. I think it helps ground the book and you, you can actually relate it to something that you can start to look into more online and look into this organism. You have its scientific name and discover even more about it if you want to. So what made you choose the different organisms for these books? Um, well, they try, they, they kind of chose themselves in a way. Uh, mm-hmm. so the books in, in some ways are more about, uh, phenomena that microbes are responsible for than the actual organisms that star in the books. So, um, but, uh, so it's, it's more about things that microbes do and each one sort of tells a story of some important aspect of microbiology in it or some fascinating aspect of microbiology and the specific mm. bacteria that I've chosen are sort of used as a vehicle to sort of illustrate the phenomenon. Mm. Um, but, you know, there's a combination of uh, organisms that I've worked with um, or, and organisms that I've read about or heard talk about at uh, conferences um, yeah, so it's it's a little bit random. Um, I like it. One of the one of the tricky aspects of it is that you know many microorganisms actually look the same. So it's fascinating to see how the illustrators differentiate them um, to try and give them an aesthetic. You know, I have this really strange set of rules uh, for what can fly and what can't fly in these books. So I like it to be accurate, um, mm-hmm. but of course the microorganisms have faces and use their flagella like arms or legs. And <laughs> so, you know, there's some, some, some rules that get broken and then there's some other ones that I like to adhere to really strictly. So, you know, some of the illustrators will put, um, you know, things that we see in our everyday life into uh, the background of a microbial setting. And I'm like, no, 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 the scale is all wrong. Um, <laughs> I like you can't that. have that there. <laughs> yeah. Like, but the microbes oh. got faces. Like, that bit doesn't matter. Um, but I think personifying them helps people relate to them and uh and you Mm. know if if for a lot of microbiologists that work on a pet organism you know that organism has a personality to the person working on them and I wanted to try and uh get other people thinking Mm -hmm. that way about microorganisms that's really good yeah that's very true that when you start to work with an organism, it's like they, it becomes so special to you. So often people ask me, what's your favorite microorganism? And I can't not choose the one that I worked with during my PhD. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I got to know it so well, you know, it's like a friend, an old friend. Yeah. 
Yeah, and a lot of people spend, uh, you know, an entire career studying one organism, uh, and I really mm-hmm. admire that. I've, I've been, I don't have that kind of attention span, so I, I sort mm-hmm. of flip between different organisms, and, you know, I'm as much interested in the science of microbiology as I am in the sort of engineering applications of microbiology. I sort of sit somewhere in the middle, bridging mm-hmm. science and engineering, because I think it's fascinating, yes, fundamentally, but it's also there are also great opportunities to uh, harness the power of microbiology to improve things. So the the name of the publishing company you have is Micronovo. So can you tell us a little bit about the name? Uh, it just refers to sort of new microbiology. Um, you know, when I started doing this, it was something nobody had done before, writing kids' mm-hmm. books about microbiology. So it was just a... Uh, a new insight into microbiology or yeah, there's not much behind the name, although the logo is very cool. So the logo was designed, uh, it's made up, it's, it's in the shape of an M has three bacteria, bacterial cells in it. Um, but it also looks like, um, uh, I think a Chinese character for, uh, water and for a small, mm-hmm. um, I like that. Yeah. So it has, has some layered meanings there in the logo. More so than in the name. Yeah, that's really neat. So let's talk about a few of the books. Um, There's one called Allie Finds Her Glow, and it is about Allie Vibrio Fisheri, or as some people know as Vibrio Fisheri. And this organism is bioluminescent in the squid light organ because of quorum sensing and you talk about all those things in the book. So um, tell us a little bit about that story and um, about what that means to you and kind of why you chose that one. Yeah, there's, there's a lot in this book. I love this story. Um, And the, the, the original version was actually called Vibri Finds Her Glow. And then I was, uh, found out that actually Vibrio is now, uh, Vibrio Fisheri is now known as Alec Vibrio Fisheri. Not that most researchers use that name, but I thought I should use the official name. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, this story is about um, Vibrio Fisheri, or Alec Vibrio Fisheri, which is a marine bacterium. And it just does so many fascinating things. So it, as you mentioned, it's luminescent, so it produces light from chemicals. Um, it forms a symbiosis with squid and, uh, and it uses uh, a system of gene regulation or gene expression regulation called quorum sensing to uh, a sort of a decision-making system for whether it should be luminescing or not. So it doesn't make sense for an individual bacterial cell to be luminescing um, because no one can see it. There's no purpose to it. Uh, but if they're in a group and um, they luminesce, then it has some ecological relevance. So it has ecological relevance in the uh, symbiosis with the squid. And so I wanted to try and communicate that these bacteria were producing chemicals that were diffusing out of the cell. And if they're a single cell, then that chemical would diffuse away. But if there's a billion cells together producing that chemical, then it builds up in concentration inside the light organ of the squid and activates the genes encoding transformation of chemicals into light. Uh, And 
So one of the themes, I mean, quantum sensing is a really strong theme here, and I like that idea so much. It was part of what I was doing in my PhD, um, hmm. interfering with quorum sensing using algal metabolites. Um, but it was, uh, it, it's a system whereby bacteria can transform from unicellular behavior into multicellular behavior. And it's all based on cooperation. And I really enjoy these themes of cooperation and competition in biology because cooperative traits mm. generally are more successful than competitive traits. Mm. And I think there are lessons there, uh, sort, of, sort of ethical, moral lessons about how we can behave as well to be more cooperative. Um, so I think it's really fascinating that bacteria are social creatures and they change their behavior, whether they're an individual floating around or they're part of a, a big group. That is fascinating to think about these organisms that we think of as very simple, but actually using these mechanisms that are actually like very sophisticated and they're <laughs> that cooperation works to their benefit more than competition. That is pretty mind blowing. And and yeah, very interesting. I think one of my favorite parts of the book you say, um, and where you get into, she's about to start to glow. And it says, before long, the bacteria started to sing a chorus of chemical verse spread amongst the festivities. And then the most extraordinary thing happened. And then you start to describe that they begin to glow, which I just love that. I think it's it's a beautiful way to describe quorum sensing and bioluminescence. So I enjoyed yep. that thoroughly. It's, it, it's a pretty mystical thing to have uh, this sense of cooperativity and competition playing out sort of wo woven into the, the fabric of life, even at the most basic <laughs> levels. Yeah. I love that. It's so beautiful. Yeah, the illustrations as well by Natasha Verona are quite extraordinary. I've never met her. Um, I found stuff that she'd put online and uh, got in contact with her and asked her if she'd be willing to illustrate the book. So I'm very grateful she's participated. Yeah, the illustrations are really, really beautiful too. And they're perfect for just kind of capturing the way that you imagine glowing feels, but then in like the shape of a microbe. <laughs> yeah. So I really like that a lot. Yeah, it's great. Um, okay, so the next one I want to talk about is Pelagi, and I may be pronouncing that wrong, Emperor of Earth. Yeah, no, that's the that's the pronunciation. So Pelagibacter ubiquae is the most abundant organism on Earth, and it lives in the ocean. So that's crazy to think about. Um, so what is it doing in the ocean, and how did scientists discover it? Yeah, these are good questions. I like this story too. Uh, so the motivation here, this is in some ways about the molecular revolution in microbiology. So microbiology traditionally has been very dependent on agar plates to cultivate microorganisms. Um, but this is a story about an organism, one of the first that was uh, discovered before it was grown in the laboratory. Um, so scientists were uh, in the 80s, um, rather than trying to grow microorganisms, they were extracting DNA from the environment, from marine samples, 
and they recognized that there were DNA sequences in there for organisms that nobody had ever seen before or been able to cultivate mm. in the laboratory. Um, and one of the most abundant DNA sequences that they found was from this organism. It didn't have a name. They called it SAR-11 for a long time. The SAR stands for uh, Sargasso Sea, which is where they were sampling. Um, so, but I just thought it was something the world should know that, uh, that the, the most abundant organism on the planet is something that nobody's ever heard of and didn't even have a name up until, <laughs> uh, I guess, the, the 90s probably. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's a funny little organism. And, you know, for a microbe, it, it's even small and it has a very simple uh, genome. Um, it doesn't encode a lot of different genes and it doesn't do a whole lot of things. It makes a living much like we do. It eats organic carbon and it respires oxygen. Um, but there seems to be something about it, its simplicity, uh, that has led to it becoming the most abundant organism on the planet. Mm. It's it's really neat. I love that. <laughs> it's It's just weird, you know? It's like mind-blowing whenever you really think about it, that it's the most abundant organism on Earth. I just can't even wrap my head around that completely. Yeah, so you can, you can imagine how much... Um, carbon that it's respiring and i mean it mm -hmm. really um, pulls a lot of weight in terms of biogeochemical cycling on the planet and it's fascinating that gen gen you know people generally don't know about this but these discoveries are being made all the time you read papers um about a, a massively abundant organism that no one knows anything about there's so much more to discover still in microbiology so you mentioned biogeochemical cycling. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. So the world is uh, made up of chemicals and there are cycles, the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the phosphorus cycle. Uh, and, you know, the earth is one giant ecosystem um, and microbes are really the engineers of these uh, cycles where chemicals are transformed and uh, into certain things and then ultimately transformed back into what they originally were. And so uh, our survival is dependent on these biogeochemical cycles. This really drive um, the ecosystem services that we are dependent on. Um, you know, one good example is the, the oxygenation of the Earth's atmosphere. Um, this happened long before plants evolved. This was carried out by microorganisms. And to this day, about 50% of the oxygen in the atmosphere is produced by photosynthetic bacteria in the oceans. Um, so despite their diminutive size, it's by virtue of their extraordinary abundance that they play major roles in these really important uh, elemental cycles of the planet. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. It's profound. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Which is why it's so important that children grow up knowing about this. Yeah. And I think because you can't go to the zoo and see these organisms, unless you live in Amsterdam and you can go to the museum Micropia and actually see these things, it's, it's hard for kids to really even be exposed to this stuff. So I think it's... Amazing and great that you have written these books. Um, I also really like the illustrations in this book, and I like that you you have the bacteria, um, the Pelagibacter ubiquae, but then you also have included diatoms, 
which are algae that are um, in water. And so then they're really beautiful organisms too. So I just think those illustrations are really neat. They kind of show the diversity in the microbial world as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to sort of uh, put the organism within its ecosystem um, and, and to, <laughs> yeah. to give a bit of emotion there. There's this wonderful bit in that book where, uh, you know, Pelagi's all by himself and he doesn't have any friends to play with. And he's, uh, <laughs> he gets sad. There's, there's this one line. Um, what is it? Uh, and he cried into the salty void. I love that. It's a little emotional. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know. Oh, but this is, yep. this is, this is how a good book should be. There's ups, there's downs. Uh, yep. and I think it's nice for children to relate to that. And also, um, you know, I think kids worry a lot about their size, you know, some kids that aren't growing as fast as other kids. And, um, so it was a little, a little nod, this book to, to kids that worry about being small because Pelagibacter yeah. is uh, small. Yeah. I like that too. It does seem like that is a topic that comes up a lot for kids and parents wondering about how much have they grown? What, how tall are they? Where do they fall? And it's like, well, you can, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. You know, um, it, I mean, it matters for some things, but on the grand scale, it's, you can be small and still do great things. Exactly. So, um, the third one I wanted to talk about is <laughs> kind of a funny title. It's, do you want to say it for me? Met goes. Met goes poops. Poops. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was like a drawn out poops or just poops. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's even longer in the book. You can, there's a lot of fun you can have with this book, reading it to kids. Yeah. It's got uh, some extra O's in there. So, Okay. <laughs> I really like this one um, because it highlights Archaea, which I don't, I think a lot of people don't even know about Archaea. But then, of course, children, uh, this is probably, uh, as far as I'm aware, the only book that children's book that has Archaea in it. So I really like it for that. It's um, the, the organism is Methano Sarsini. Sarcina Barcarii? Is that? <laughs> so is that I would right? say Methano Sarcina Barcarii. Barcarii. Okay. So, um, or, yeah, I, what does this, tell me a little bit about this organism and what motivated you to write this one. Yeah, so part of the motivation was that uh, all my books were on bacteria. I've mostly in my research studied bacteria, and um, but there is this whole other branch to the tree of life, and three branches, of, three main branches of the tree of life, the eukaryotes, which is the branch that we sit on along with all the other animals and with all the plants and with all the fungi. Um, and then there's the bacterial branch, and people have heard of bacteria, but there's this third branch, which even the scientists didn't know existed until the 1980s. Um, and again, through DNA sequencing, rather than growing things on agar plates, this, was, this discovery was made that these little organisms that look like bacteria actually have a completely separate evolutionary history. And so I didn't have any books that included archaea, despite the fact that these organisms are also massively abundant on the planet and do important things. Uh, so I decided to write an archaeal book 
And I've done a little bit of research in the research space of biogas production. So the decomposition of organic feedstocks, it could be food waste, it could be um, agricultural waste, it could be activated sludge from a wastewater treatment plant. This can all be broken down to produce biogas. Uh, and biogas is partly methane and partly CO2. And we can use that gas as a fuel. Um, but mm. methane is also um, a really potent greenhouse gas. So uh, emissions from natural environments um, are a problem. Um, but we can also engineer systems to generate biogas and use that gas as a fuel. So we're sort of harvesting energy from organic waste, which is a, a clever thing to do. So the methane is actually produced by what we call methanogenic uh, methane making, archaea, like methanosarcina barkeri. So I wanted to integrate that into a story. Um, and uh, originally I had, um, so for the people who don't know the book, uh, it starts with two cows jumping on a trampoline. Originally they were children, <laughs> but I, I figured out at some point that methanosarcina barkeri doesn't actually inhabit the gastrointestinal tract of humans. So I had to mm. switch out the children and put in cows. Um, so again, you know, the microbes have to behave how they normally behave in the books, but cows are allowed to jump on trampolines. <laughs> I like that. I like that you made an, a point to be accurate about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a funny, funny conversation with the illustrator. Her name is Adelaide Spicer. And uh, I had to ring her up one day and say, hey, we actually have to switch those kids out and put cows in because I've just figured out <laughs> that this organism doesn't inhabit the guts of humans. Um, but she funny. was really great, another great illustrator. She was actually a former student of mine, and uh, she submitted an oh, exam yeah. paper with doodles on all over the exam paper. And so I said, <laughs> Adelaide Spicer, I need to talk to you. <laughs> um, and uh, invited her to illustrate one of these books, and she was awesome. That is, that's so really cool. A lot of these illustrators are first-time illustrators as well. So some of them are professionals. I mean, they all get paid. Um, but uh, I like to give people that opportunity and to just um, to get new people into illustration and because uh, it's, it's a fantastical phenomenon to me. So I can't draw for peanuts. I can't, I'm not musical at all, but I love music uh, and I love uh, art. And so I find people who can do this really amazing to be able to take something that's in my head as a vision and put it down on paper is a really, really rewarding process. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I'm the same way. I'm not good at drawing or anything like that. And I hired a, a science artist to work with me on um, – the joyful Winogradsky column guide that I put out recently. And um, Lisa Vanderart drew what was in my head, as you described, and put it on paper exactly right. And I was like, this is incredible. I can't believe how great this turned out. I just could never do it on my own. Yeah, there's something magical there. But for mm -hmm. people listening, go and check out Adelaide Spicer on Instagram or Natasha Verona. These are really talented people. Oh, that'll be great. I will link to their Instagram accounts in the show notes then. Um, another thing that I liked about this one is that you have 
a tree of life, but it's kind of like a tree house, <laughs> sort of, where they have platforms with the bacteria, archaea, and eukaryotes. Um, so I think that's really neat, too. Yeah, There's a lot of educational things that you could miss the first time around reading these. These are definitely books you could read over and over. Yeah. And for everyone out there who has kids, you know that you're going to have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So how did you, you talked a little bit about like your motivation, but how did you get interested in writing children's books to begin with? Uh, so I've been interested in science communication for a long time, um, you know, to be able to communicate complex stuff that I was doing in my work um, and, you know, just learning in undergrad as well to be able to explain it to my mother or my friends. Um, you know, I always had a desire to be able to make other people understand why I think this stuff is so cool. Mm. Um, so, you know, I always wanted to share uh, that. And I had this idea of writing stories about microbiology sitting in my head for a long time. And I worked in Japan for a while and I was really keen to get someone who was uh, into anime to um, or manga to uh, illustrate some of these books. Um but it, it just didn't happen for a long time. And the real change came um, for writing children's books when I had children. <laughs> um, mm. So I, uh, you know, and they, they started to read. So my son, Felix, when he was uh, five or six or five, I guess, started school. And I hadn't, I'd never really thought about it, how long it takes a child to learn to read. And um, it, it was just remarkably fast. So, mm. Uh, I thought, oh man, I could I could do it now. It really motivated me to sit down and have a a, a bash at writing out a script um, <laughs> and to talk to illustrators and just jump into it. You know, it took a little bit of activation energy, but I thought if I have a kid at home who's just started to read and that's my target audience, then I've got a golden opportunity. He's thirteen now; it's quite different. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> I love that. Um, so. What's next? Do you have another book up your sleeve? Oh, I have so many written. Um, <laughs> so it's it's because the whole thing is a hobby. You know, I need to sell enough books to afford to make the next the, the next one. The mm -hmm. whole thing has to kind of operate cost neutral. Um, so yeah, I've got I've got lots of other great stories. I've got one based on bioremediation about an. One of a, an organism that we discovered that breaks down pollutants in groundwater that's set underground. Um, I have another one based on Geobacter about extracellular electron transfer. Uh, another one based on um, Serratia liquefations, which produces extracellular enzymes to uh, degrade a cucumber. Um, there's another one on spore formation. Uh, yeah. There's lots. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's so great. I mean, to, to, to write stories about the microbial world, in some ways it's really easy because there's so much there, so much diverse behavior and diverse organisms and so many different ways that uh, these microorganisms intersect with our lives. Um, you know, it's, it's endless, really. And that's, that's my dream, really, to have so many books that I, um, I don't remember writing some of them. <laughs> I love it. That's really awesome. And I hopefully one day I'll get to write a children's book too. I definitely have that as a dream. Um, 
So tell us, what have you learned overall from your work that's changed the way you think about microbes in your daily life? Yeah, so this is a good question. Um, I've kind of got a weird answer for this question. So microbiology in my life has played a similar role to what religion does in other people's lives. Um, you know, this idea that microbes are everywhere and that they are in me, that I'm part microbial, um, that I'm dependent on microbes for the oxygen I breathe, for the food that I eat, uh, from the removal of waste that I generated. Um, you know, insulin is produced biotechnologically with microorganisms, vitamin B12, the same uh, bacteria, the only organisms on the planet that can produce vitamin B12, but every living form is um, dependent on vitamin B12, uses vitamin B12, that they're social, um, that there's 100 million more microbes on this planet than there are stars in the universe, that for every kilogram of human on the planet, there's 100,000 kilograms of microbe. Um, so for me, it's microbiology is quite uh, mystical um, mm. and occupies a place in my mind uh, that others uh, would fill with having, you know, a, a deity or a... Um, have, you ever, have you ever seen the movie uh, Princess Mononoke? No, I haven't. So it's a Japanese animated film out of Studio Ghibli, um, the same studio that does things like Howl's Moving Castle or uh, Spirited Away. You heard of those? Mm -mm. Oh, you've got so much to enjoy. Um, <laughs> but there's this great, great movie called Princess Mononoke, and it's really about the conflict between human activity and the environment. Uh, and in that animated film, there's this character called the spirit of the forest or the forest spirit. And it rises up in kind of this amorphous but humanoid type form out of the forests at dusk and um, is responsible for turning these biogeochemical cycles that we were talking about earlier. Uh, so making the plants grow and making them die and de decompose such that those nutrients are then available for another plant. And same with the animals. And it plays this really important role uh, in kind of being the guardian or, um, I guess, a conductor, like an orchestra for the forest and all the ecology and biology in the forest. And I was sitting there watching that film and I thought, oh, actually, that's kind of representing microbiology, hmm. that spirit of the forest, that the planet does have a spirit. Um, but, you know, tangibly, it's made up of lots of little cells. Uh, and we can study them and we have um, uh, an amazing record of the history of uh, the evolution of all these different microorganisms based on DNA sequences and how they change over time. Um, so microbiology's, you know, really become, uh, you know, part of me and my belief system. And so when I talk about, um, you know, quorum sensing and uh, this conflict between cooperation and competition uh, and how, Cooperation is uh, a superior strategy than competitive strategies over time. Um, you know, I see moral code built, built into the fabric of biology and, you know, I, it's, mm. yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think that's fascinating. It's um, an interesting way to think about it. You know, it's a little bit more than just washing your hands and, you know, we're really immersed in a microbial world. Microbes are the 
foundation of all life on earth. They pl- provide all these ecosystem circus, uh, services, but uh, they're also our ancient ancestors. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. This invisible world is doing so much. Yeah, and we're all connected through it. So what at-home microbiology activity can you tell us about so we can experience the microbial world in a hands-on way? Yeah, that's another good question. So I guess there are uh, standard activities like making bread or making beer or making yogurt, which a lot of people do uh, uh, certainly enjoy the the products of. Um, I did have one (laughs) other thought that you could actually just not flush your toilet. (laughs) to uh (laughs) to um experience what microorganisms can do uh, when they have nutrients available uh but i think something people could do just to get a sense of what happens with and without microorganisms and relate this to uh, my research on biodegradation you could take something biodegradable like um fruit or vegetables you could chop up some carrot and put it into two different jars and let one, you know, maybe put a little bit of water in there and let one jar um, do what it's going to do. Um, possibly with an inoculum, you could stick a little bit of soil in there. Um, and then with the other jar, you could uh, depress the microbial activity. And because microbes um, mostly pivot on pH or water content or temperature or the availability of oxygen you can change those things in that other jar. So you could lower water content by uh, putting a load of salt in there and that will stop the microbial activity. You can observe over time the decomposition of the carrot uh, with microbial mm. activity and without microbial activity. <laughs> so there are also yeah. things around the house where you can use to manipulate pH. For example, you could use Coca-Cola or lemon juice to, to lower the pH and to make it a more acidic pH. Um, you, know, you can manipulate water content with salt or just by not putting water in there. You can manipulate temperature uh, using an oven. Um, you can also you could create a jar that didn't have any oxygen in it just by putting a little tea light candle in there and sparking it up until it's consumed all the oxygen and burns itself out. So there are things you can do at home to play with these primary parameters that microorganisms are responding to. Yeah. And you can even, if you just did the salt with the vegetable, you would start doing some fermentation if you did the right salt concentration. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Um, That's true. You might end up with something edible. Be careful with yeah. it. <laughs> and then something, your uh, control would be really disgusting <laughs> and show you why you add salt in fermentation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But using soil so, as an inoculum is uh, a nice idea. Um, you know, there's a I billion like cells in a gram of soil. So there's a lot of, a lot of microorganisms there. You won't need a lot of soil, just a little bit. Right, yeah. So you'd have the soil and that would introduce some different organisms. So yeah. I like that. But there, there, there should be a little safety warning. Should be a little safety warning just to say you know, that some microorganisms in the environment are pathogenic. They can cause you harm. So uh, best to do these things outside, not to get your face too close to it. Keep washing your hands. Those kinds of things. Yep. Good. Thanks for the safety warning. I think that's always wise to add in whenever we're doing these at-home activities that could p- potentially 
cultivate pathogens. Yeah, generally, um, if they're in small numbers, it's it's fine. But if you're doing an incubation and they get to high abundance, then you could run into trouble. Hmm. So do you have any resources that you'd like to share so the listeners can go deeper on this topic? Um, I think it's easy enough to Google some of the things that I've talked about. Obviously, there's the books that people can get into. Um, you know, I highly recommend uh, the Giant Microbes uh, people as a, a great resource. Um, uh, Magic Microbes also do some really fantastic things. Um, there are other great kids' books on microbiology. So I've got a mate, uh, Greg Crescetti, and uh, some of his friends that have produced some really, really cool books. Um, they're called the Small Friends Books. Um, they're better than my books. <laughs> um, so mine are uh, sort of 20 pages short, like Mr. Men books, um, but they've produced some really exquisitely illustrated and sort of hardcover books that are uh, really nice. Um, uh, Ed Yong's book springs to mind. I contain multitudes. That's a really nice one. Mm-hmm. Um, and your podcast, Justine, people can just keep <laughs> listening in. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And you also have a discount code for everybody. If you want to go and get some of these Micronova books. So that is, um, do you want to share that with everybody? Uh, yeah, if I can remember what it is, I think it was joyful 21 was the, the discount code. Um, but maybe it's for 30% off the books. Yeah. 30% off the books. They'll take a little while to get to the U S (laughs) though. It takes a little bit of time, but it's worth it. Yeah. So, um, and the website you gave me is, micronovo.com.au slash discount slash joyful 21. So you can, or can they just go in and enter joyful 21 if they just go to the website and start ordering books? Yeah. If just as you're checking out, if you type in joyful 21, then uh, you'll get the discount. Okay. So where besides at micronovo.com, um, where else can people find you and follow you? Uh, so I'm on Twitter uh, as Mike Mainfield and uh, Facebook um, as Escher Surfs. That's all related to the books. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, but I don't do any of that. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure talking to you about your books and about bioremediation. So I really appreciate your time. Likewise, Justine. It's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Joyful Microbe Podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to help others who love microbes to find the podcast, then please leave a rating and a review for the show. And tell a friend. To learn more about the Joyful Microbe, head on over to joyfulmicrobe.com where you will find the show notes and all the links and resources mentioned. If you love Joyful Microbe and would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a virtual tip through coffee. The link is in the show notes and on joyfulmicrobe.com at the bottom of the page. Thanks again, microbe friends. Talk to you next time.